So last week, we looked at Jesus healing a paralyzed man. And this week, we're going to talk about the company that Jesus kept. It sounds very echoey to me. Is it okay for you? Yeah? It's okay. Okay. So we're going to read our passage, which is Mark 2, verses 13 to 17, and then make some observations. So if you've got a Bible with you, um, then turn to Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. Okay, here we go. So Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Of course, there's an irony in that last phrase, isn't there? Because the people that he was talking to were not righteous. He would have criticized them, and he did, in fact, later on, criticize them for their self-righteousness. So I want to begin with a joke. Uh, It's not funny. Don't laugh, but that's not the point. Here's the joke. Don't answer the question, but here we go. The, The question is, why did Jesus cross the road? And the answer is, to get to the other stop. Today's passage is about how Jesus acts towards outsiders. Tax collectors, as you know, tended to be Jewish people who had capitulated to the Romans. They worked for the Romans. They collected taxes from the Jewish people. And it's not hard to see why they were considered immoral, devious, self-serving. After all, they were profiting from a corrupt system run by pagan rulers. They were not welcome, they were not liked. It seems, though, that Jesus, rather than excluding people whom society deemed unfit, welcomed them. And not only welcomed them, but ate with them. Which, if you know anything about Palestinian first century culture, was quite a radical thing to do. Eating with someone meant that you accepted them, identified with them. That was the level of the status of food culture at the time. And it continues to be very important in that way in the Middle East right now. You didn't have your own plate for dinner or for lunch. You ate with your hands from dishes set in the middle of the table or on the floor where you would uh, mop up hummus and olive oil and pick olives from a common plate or tear bits of lamb from a cooked carcass in the middle. And the religious folks hated it, this symbolic provocation. Now, Jesus intentionally called Matthew, Levi, he has two names, a tax collector, as I've said, a sinner and a traitor in the eyes of the religious uh, Jews of the day. He called him to follow him, to be part of the inner circle of the movement that Jesus was, um, uh, that Jesus initiated. 
then having called him in public, he went to his house and he ate and he drank with his friends. And I, as an aside, I wonder how much wine Jesus drank. Not too much, I imagine, but I guess he was part of what they were doing. He was involved in what they were doing, chatting, uh, and you can use your imagination, but I, I think Jesus would have been very much integrated into what was going on there. I don't mean that he would have gone over a boundary of his own conscience, of God's law, things like that, but that he would have been welcoming, participating in normal, God-given things. The Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus, including and welcoming those whom society had rejected, people who society had written off or put out of the way. I don't know how many of you know the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. No. Um, Here's a quote from Walter. It is the work of the church to resist the commonly described world, to engage in, ponder, and enact a re-described world. So the world around us portrays reality in a particular way, and it's our job to think about that, the way that we're told the world works through the media and what have you, to think about how, as followers of Jesus, we might rethink our vocation towards the world and also in church towards one another and then live out that new image that we have of what it's like to be humans made in God's likeness. What would that look like to be a community of people who were forged in the gospel, forged by a good news, forged by the mind of God? Here's how I imagine human beings will act and think and all of that. We're followers, of course, of the one who the Bible says died outside the city walls. Being part of this family, this movement, has something or should have something to do with rejection by identification. We are, by association with Jesus, people on the margins, on the outside, By definition, as Jesus followers, we are outsiders. We're called, as sociologists like to put it, other, which is why I started with that joke. The other is the one who is different from you. If you think about the way in English we use the word other, you'll notice that if I said uh, I saw John the other day, I'm talking about a day that's different from the one I'm in now. Other refers to the not here, the not now, the not me. It's the other, the one that's different, which is why there are things... Oh, did I put that? I don't recognize that word. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, now, being part of this movement also has something to do with enactment, with acting something out. And this acting out has something to do with engagement and pondering. Pondering means thinking things through, working out what we're doing, why we're here, and where we're going. Jesus was intentional about who he spent time with. And we, I think, are to be equally intentional about it. And so above all, we are a community that describes something, that portrays something about God, that describes something. We're to be the initiators of a re-described world. What we describe, in fact, is a kind of narrative, a story, Our distinctive vocation then is to be storytellers in everything that we do and think and talk to other people about. 
tell of a story which is so much a part of who we are that we communicate it through every pore. It's actually, as Jesus was in his incarnation, an embodied story. I like to think of Jesus as a kind of prophetic embodiment of the Word of God. Does that make sense? So the Old Testament prophets told people the mind of God. Here's what God is thinking about you now, about the nations that are around you now. Now here's Jesus, not only the one with the Word, but the one who somehow within himself embodies Yahweh, embodies the God of the Jews coming in his royal messiahship, his uh, presence as the one who not only could tell people the truth, but do it with authority, which is one of the things that you talked about the other day. So what does it all mean, practically? I think it means, at one level, that we have to begin to ask ourselves, if we don't do this already, searching questions. Questions like, what are my prejudices? Who do I love to hate? Or hate to love? Behind me is a list of people groups who tend to get marginalized in one way or another by one group or another. In the passage in front of us, we, think, we have, I think, a, a window onto Jesus' attitude towards others, especially those counted outsiders. James, Paul, and the other New Testament writers pick up this theme in their writings as well. One of the most obvious places to look is in James chapter 2, verse 2 to 9. So why don't you flip over to James towards the back of the New Testament uh, after Hebrews. And what we find in chapter 2, verses 2 to 9, is this. I'll just give you a minute to find it. James chapter 2, verse 2 to 9. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit at my feet... Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. There's a verse that I couldn't find because of time uh, last night, which says, uh, be willing to associate with people of low status. Uh, Here's some homework for you. Uh, Jesus takes us where we are. We're to do the same with others. When I was in my early 20s, and I became a Christian when I was 17, I used to uh, go out and uh, on my way here and there would uh, sit with homeless people if I noticed them, and I'd share my lunch with them. And I remember one time a school group of children walked past as I was sitting chatting with this guy, um, and um, one of the children said to the teacher, who are they? And the teacher said, oh, they're homeless. And I wanted to jump up and say, no, no, I'm not. I go to university. I live in a house. (laughs) It can be embarrassing to identify with people who are different because we then are grouped 
with them. But that's exactly what God calls us to do, to be identified with people who are our other, the other one, the one that we, if we're honest, at times don't really want to identify with, might be uncomfortable doing that with. There's a revolutionary element to Jesus' actions in our passage. It's not a Marxist type of revolutionary uh, attitude. Jesus reaches out not only to the poor and destitute, but also to those who are benefiting from the predicament of the poor. Matthew was benefiting from the poor who were the majority in first century Palestine. He took the taxes. Um, We have a a parallel with the Occupy movement of late 2010, 2011, who camped outside on the the, um, steps of St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, arguing that Jesus would have camped with them. Well, on the one hand, I think that's probably true. Of course, God loves justice. God likes, will hold people to account on Judgment Day. And he does it, I think, within time, here and now, in different ways. But this passage that we're looking at, and many others like it in the Gospels, I think of stories like the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the rich young ruler, the centurion, Nicodemus, and others, show that Jesus is equally committed to every individual from every walk of life. He begins where people are at. So, some practical ideas. Remembering that what Jesus is doing in the first century in Palestine is resisting the commonly described world and enacting a new one from the quote uh, from a few moments ago. So in what practical ways among your neighbors at work, out and about, can we do that? Um, I don't know how many of you went to Gay Pride, which was here um, two weeks ago. Uh, There were a lot of people there. I didn't go. My wife went and she told me that there were a lot of people protesting with placards, and I don't know what was on the placards. You can find out from her if if you want to uh, at the end. Um, But I wondered how many of the people who were protesting the lifestyle choices of uh, the people involved in gay pride had invited them for a coffee, to a cafe, to chat, to find out who they are, where they're coming from, what they think, not only about their own lifestyle choices, but about other things, politics and... and, and, um, whatever people talk about, you know, the football, I don't know. Uh, how, how many people walked over to the other bit of the territory that was very clearly demarcated between protesters and, uh, I don't know what, what, to, what they would do, I guess, um, being proud about being gay. Okay, so that bit of the pavement. Was there anybody walking over, like my joke at the beginning? I think Jesus would have gone over and chatted and found out about them, the individual. One of the dangers, I think, of grouping people, uh, homosexual, Muslim, whatever you like, is that we take away the individual. We remove them, and in the individual's place, we put a caricature. Here's what you are. Here's, you're, if you're a Muslim, you're a jihadist. If you're a, a, a gay person, then, then, then uh, uh, you're dangerous in one way or another, a corrupter of good moral values and what have you. You notice that in our passage it says that there were many who followed him. And the many that's being talked about there is the many tax collectors and sinners, including prostitutes and many, many others. Clearly, they were people who liked being with Jesus. They found in him a kind of magnetism. They wanted to talk more. They wanted to find out what was going on. They wanted to join this 
movement of nobodies, which is what it was beginning to look like. The tax collectors and the sinners with whom Jesus ate and drank were also, of course, the people to whom Jesus said, go and sin no more. It's not a question of a kind of liberal, do whatever you want, we're, we're cool with that, do, do what you want, and then we can, we can go to Jerusalem together. It's, you, you can follow me, but, but there are things you have to know about my identity, about how to obey the law of Moses in terms of what was going on there, in terms of the new covenant statutes that you find in the beginning of Matthew, Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, there are things Jesus wants people to know. He taught them with authority, but he loved people. He identified with people. He moved towards people. It's very common, isn't it, in churches to have a mentality where we're in here, and what we do is we venture out to find people and then to change the way they think or the way they believe and then introduce them to our world, and then we live here in our world. I think we want to turn that around a little bit and, and begin to live in all that we do, work and uh, university and uh, high school and, and uh, whatever we do, in a way which is porous, you know, like a tea bag that lets water in and out so that the effect of the tea uh, influences the water and, and makes the tea that I'm not very good at making for my wife who... Um, anyway. I'm good at coffee. So... Uh, One other thing before I conclude, Um, there are really two aspects to uh, what we're looking at today. On the one hand, there's the outward bit, which is what we focused on primarily. There's the bit where the church relates to the outside world. People who uh, don't know what we're talking about might or might not want to know, but there's that dimension, what we're doing there. And on that one, I've got a a couple of tips, uh, ways to think maybe about how we're doing that that may provide a bit of guidance. So first of all, I think it's very uh, good to try to identify the people uh, that we think we have prejudices about and go and find them and then have a chat. So I've got a growing list, my wife will tell you, of people who I I find that make me a bit nervous and um, I'm trying to work through my list of, of people. So at the top of the list is a Mormon. The other day, I uh, was uh, pushing the buggy uh, with children in it, and I got a flat tire, and I noticed two uh, Mormons get off bicycles. So I went over to them. I said, um, you look like helpful gentlemen. I wondered if you could help me pump up the tire. And we spent 15 minutes chatting while one of them didn't only pump up and fix one tire, but went around and did all three. And, um, and we had a lovely time chatting. And I told them where I lived, which you don't do to Mormons, because they'll come round, and I said them, come for dinner, and they haven't come. But uh, I, I found that my anxiety levels were reduced completely by walking over and finding out actually that they were normal people and, um, and nothing to worry about. And so I have, a, a, I guess, about five or six people on my list. There are a number of them on, on here. Um, identify who yours are, and then phone people who can put you in contact. There's a concept out there, I don't know if you've come across it, called the, the, I think it's called the People Library, a project set up where you can go into a library full of people who are environmentalists, young offenders, uh, uh, what have you, and you can sort of take one out on loan and you can just talk to them. I think that'd be really good to do. Um, secondly, um, the famous Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer used to say, in an hour's conversation, you should listen for about 55 minutes. At the end, you might have something worth 
contributing at the end of the conversation. I think that's quite good advice. The, the famous saying goes, doesn't it? We have one mouth but two ears. So that would be a good proportion uh, to have our communication in. Uh, there'll be times when we want to talk a bit more, of course, but uh, those times will come. And finally, we are, in lots of different ways, an embodiment of good news. So let's subvert the world as it is commonly described. In doing so, I think we'll find that we'll be in the most unlikely situations with the most unlikely people, having the most unlikely conversations, and God will work through us and what we're doing. So that's the first bit of what we're talking about. The second element that we're talking about isn't the church and the world. It's the church and itself. It's the bit about how we relate to one another. You'll all have seen or heard of the documentary, Who Do You Think You Are? Do you know that one? Where famous people uh, trace their ancestry, they find out about their families going back as far as they can, one, two, three, four, five hundred years. Uh, and often they find uh, that um, they're not who they thought they were, or the people who are their family were, are not who they thought or even knew that they were. Well, when we judge someone for being middle class or working class within our own group, for being too educated or undereducated, for being naive or overconfident, we might well hear God ask, who do you think you are? Paul had something to say about that, not about the program, but about that idea in 1 Corinthians. So could you turn over to 1 Corinthians? Because I think that if we trace where we come from, what we'll find is that we might be thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, which is another verse that I don't know where I would find. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I think, am I right? Hang on a second. No, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 to 29, says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know the passage in Philippians which In fact, let's turn there. I think we've got time. Are we okay, Keith, for time? Just for a couple more minutes? Just go over to Philippians, a little bit further on. And in chapter 2, and verses 3 to 7, we find a parallel thought from Paul. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. As we engage in a damaged and very beautiful world, full of incredible but disorientated people, let's not forget to honor one another too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you honor us 
You honor us in your son. You honor us by giving us a world to live in, which is beautiful, and food, which is tasty, and family, which does us good. We thank you, God, for everything that you have given us. I pray, Father, that you would change me, make me humble. Give me your attitude towards other people. Make me completely welcoming to people I don't know, to people I am prejudiced towards, whether I know it or not. I pray that you would make me a man who inhabits your mind and in whom your mind is found. I want to think like you. Father, we want to come to you and pray that you would make our interactions with people who are not here and with the people who are full of honor and grace and love. We want to esteem others more important than ourselves. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have recorded in the New Testament all that we do about you and all of your activities, all of your teaching, all of your attitudes towards people. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to obey the call that you gave to Matthew and follow you. Amen.